The first 13 chapters of Mark were almost like an Instagram reel. Just quick highlight after quick highlight of Jesus' spectacular life and ministry. But now things are very different in Mark's gospel. Mark has slowed things way down. Mark is taking his time, letting us feel the weight of the very sad and awful end of Jesus' life. Mark wants us to feel every detail. If you're new with us, we've been going through Mark's gospel, verse by verse. Today we come to chapter 15 of Mark. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15 together. If you have your Bible, if you don't have your Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. Verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. This is God's word. Up until this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been driving the action. He's been driving the action, moving from place to place, preaching and healing and doing many miracles. Everywhere he went, some form of transformation took place in the lives of those who encountered him. So, what stands out about our text today is how little Jesus says and does. How little he says and does. It seems that all the action here is happening to Jesus. It's happening to Jesus. And he is simply the passive recipient. 
Everything's happening to Jesus. He is the passive recipient in our text. He is completely still and silent except for four words. That's all that he says. Now, this is much different than what we've read previously in Mark. Much different. Jesus is completely silent here. And he is silent for three very good reasons. And we'll get to those at the end of the sermon. But first, let's examine the context to see what's really going on in this story. In the last chapter, we saw the Sanhedrin lose their absolute minds. (laughs) They lost their minds over Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. They lost their minds. They ripped their clothes, and they immediately began beating and spitting on Jesus. They didn't even wait for the guards to get there. The religious leaders themselves started beating and spitting at Jesus when he claimed to be the Son of Man from Daniel 7. And they declared him worthy of death. But they just have one problem. One problem. They don't have the authority to kill Jesus. Why is that? Well, it's because Rome was in control of Israel at this time in history. Rome had conquered this land, and they were calling the shots. Therefore, only Rome could sentence someone to death, which is why we see them in this week's text before Pilate. We see the Sanhedrin before Pilate. Now, who is Pilate? He was the legal extension of the Roman Empire in Judea. He was governing and representing Rome in this region. That's how Rome handled things in the lands that they conquered. They would send a representative to rule over those lands. And so Pilate is that ruler over Jerusalem. He held the authority of Rome, which means the Jewish leaders who condemned Jesus were at the mercy of Pilate. They were at Pilate's mercy. They could not kill Jesus without Pilate's approval. Now, a lot of people think Pilate was a weak leader based on this text. History tells us otherwise. History shows us that Pilate was a very strong leader, a very intelligent man. A very shrewd politician. But this Jewish council that's trying to kill Jesus is full of tricky little boogers. Did you notice what they did? (laughs) They're tricky little boogers. You see, they had just found Jesus guilty of blasphemy in the last text that we looked at. But they knew Pilate wouldn't give a rip about that. Pilate doesn't care about blasphemy. (laughs) So he claims to be the son of man. Big whoop. Pilate's not going to care about that. Pilate would just laugh at Jesus and send him on his way. Pilate also wouldn't have cared very much if Jesus threatened to tear down the temple. As the Jewish council accused him of. Pilate wouldn't care. He would have gotten a kick out of one lowly Jewish carpenter claiming that he's going to tear down the most magnificent structure on earth. (laughs) That would have been a real knee slapper for Pilate. He's not going to care about that either. So, 
the Jewish council takes another approach. They have to present Jesus to Pilate in such a way that Pilate would see Jesus as a threat. If they told Pilate that Jesus called himself the king of the universe, Pilate would just laugh and dismiss them all. So what did they instead claim that Jesus calls himself in front of Pilate? Did you see? The king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. Now that's much different. That is much different. If Jesus claims to be a legitimate Jewish political figure, well then Pilate must deal with him. Rome would not tolerate a usurper to the throne. And the Jews knew that. They knew that. Which is why they, they presented Jesus to Pilate as the king of the Jews, not the king of the universe. So, when Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? It has nothing to do with Jesus' religious standing. Pilate's only interested in Jesus' political standing. It's all he's interested in. He doesn't care about all that religious gobbledygook. He just wants to know, is Jesus a threat politically to himself and to Rome? So he's, that's what he's asking Jesus. Are you a threat to Rome or are you not? That's the question. And Jesus' answer to that question is amazing. Uh, it's amazing. He only says four words. You have said so. You have said so. This answer shocked Pilate. It shocked him. Commentators say that in verse 5, the Greek makes it a little more clear than the English does just how surprised Pilate is by that. And commentators actually say that Pilate is impressed with Jesus here. He's impressed. I mean, think about it. Jesus' very life hangs in the balance. Pilate really does have the authority to crucify Jesus. He does. And yet Jesus won't answer the one simple question that can get him off the hook. He won't answer. In fact, he answers with a non-answer. It's a non-answer. You have said so. Well, that answer is not really yes or a no. It's a total non-answer, which is wild, <laughs> considering that in the text right before this one, Jesus wasn't at all bashful when he was asked if he's the Messiah. He gave them a definitive, bold answer. Yes, I am the Messiah. And not only that, I am the Son of Man who will come in the clouds with glory and power. He was not bashful just one paragraph before this one. And yet here, Jesus says nothing. He says nothing. Now, this is extremely significant. Extremely significant. Let's be real clear on something right now. Let's be super clear. Though it seems... Like Jesus is passive in this story. He is not. 
he is not. Jesus, just like he has been in all of Mark's gospel, he is in full control. Full control. The Jewish council thinks they're in control. Pilate thinks he's in control. But Jesus is actually in control. Jesus is running this show. Things are going exactly as Jesus wants them to. In the last chapter, Jesus intentionally provoked the Jewish council by claiming to be the Son of Man. In this passage, Jesus intentionally says nothing. He says nothing. But the important question here today is, why? Why? Why is Jesus silent? Three very important reasons Jesus is silent. Number one in your outline, if you've got a bulletin. Number one, Jesus knew the hearts of men. Jesus knew the hearts of men. What do I mean? Well, Jesus knew what Pilate thought of him. He knew what the Jewish council thought of him. He knew what the crowds thought of him. And he knew what they all really desired, which is not him. <laughs> Certainly not his Lord and Savior. They did not. And so Jesus realized that whatever answer he gave Pilate, whatever answer he gave him, Pilate would hear that answer through a political lens. He would be weighing the threat in Jesus' words and doing a cost-benefit analysis and use Jesus' words for his own agenda, political agenda. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It's pretty common today. Politicians do exactly the same thing 2,000 years from our story today, using Jesus' words out of context to further their own agenda. They do it all the time on both sides of the aisle. Republicans and Democrats both do it. They're both in a fight to claim Jesus as their own. And Jesus refuses to be claimed by either. And he refuses to be claimed by Pilate. He's not going to let Pilate twist his words. So he tells him nothing. That's number one. Number one reason he remains silent. Number two, the second reason Jesus remains silent is Jesus trusted his father. Jesus trusted his father, his heavenly father. Jesus doesn't have to manipulate the situation, you see. He doesn't have to manipulate Pilate, convince Pilate of one thing or the other. He doesn't have to do that. Because Jesus knows Pilate is not his judge. He knows that. He has no need to prove his innocence to Pilate, since Pilate is not the one in control here. Jesus and his father are in complete control. So Jesus has no reason to manipulate Pilate. In fact, Jesus' innocence in the face of accusation is the point. It's the whole point. It's what's necessary for Christ to be our true sacrifice. It's what's necessary. Jesus' silence is an absolute display of obedience and trust in his Father. This is Jesus living out his prayer from Gethsemane. Not my will, but thy will be done. 
Jesus is not interested in saving his own neck here. Because he trusts his father all the way. But there's a third reason that Jesus is silent. Number three in your outline. Jesus loved us beyond measure. Jesus loved us beyond measure. It's incalculable how he loved us. You see, by fading into the background in this story, Jesus puts forward the other characters in the story to help us see what's really going on. Throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has put on full display the beauty and power of his kingdom. Now he's letting us see the insane, dark alternative. Let's just think for a minute how absurd this story is. Like, let's just pause for a minute and think about how ridiculous this story actually is. It's hard to describe it, really. <laughs> it's hard to describe it. To call it crazy, dark, evil, etc. doesn't quite seem to do it justice. It's like trying to draw a picture of hell with a black crayon. It's just, it doesn't quite do it justice. What is happening here in our story today is the very definition of an abomination. It's an abomination. It's the worst of the absolute worst. And you can't really put it into words. And so Mark doesn't even try. Mark doesn't even try. Mark, I believe, is the most gifted writer in history. I think he put Shakespeare to shame. But even Mark doesn't even try here to put this into words. How insane this story is. No. Being the brilliant writer he is, though, he does this. Mark decides to use a literary device called irony. He uses irony to draw out the shockingly sad reality of what's happening. To show us the infinite difference between Jesus' kingdom and our kingdom. Now, you ask, what is irony exactly? What do you mean by irony? Irony is saying one thing to emphasize the opposite. Okay? Saying one thing to emphasize the opposite. Now, often in drama literature, the author will include a character in the story or the play who is unaware of the significance of his actions. But the audience knows. The audience knows. They can see what's happening the character cannot. That's what's happening in our story here today. Mark reveals the stark contrast between Jesus' kingdom and ours through the ironic story of Barabbas. Pilate knows the Jews are up to something. He knows they're up to something fishy here. And he doesn't see anything wrong with Jesus. So, the shrewd politician that he is offers the people a choice between two prisoners to release. 
One is Jesus, the other is Barabbas. Now, you have never in your life met anyone as violent as Barabbas. You never have, and you never will. Barabbas is described here as a murderer and an insurrectionist. Other gospels add that he is a robber. This is a bad, bad dude who is rightfully locked up. Now, Pilate thinks he's made a genius political move here, okay? He thinks he's a genius here. He fully expects the crowd to release Jesus. He fully expects that. I mean, these are their options. Vile murderer or traveling preacher to release back into the public. Pretty easy choice, right? Pretty easy choice. I mean, what kind of people choose to release Barabbas instead of Jesus? <laughs> well, I'll tell you who. People like you and people like me. That's who. What do I mean? I've heard this text preached maybe 50 times in my life. I grew up in church. I heard this text preached a ton. Went through a long period of atheism. Came back from atheism to Christianity and uh, heard it preached another 20-something times after that. And I've heard a lot of great sermons on this, I'll be honest with you. Some really good ones. Really, really good ones. And I've often heard preachers say that we are all Barabbas in this story. They relate us directly to Barabbas. Jesus took sinful Barabbas' place, and he takes our place too. And that is certainly true, 100% true. We are Barabbas, no doubt. But it hit me this week, studying this text, that we're not just Barabbas. We are also the crowd who chose to set Barabbas free and crucify Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, crucifixion is a physically torturous way to die. But Mark decides not to focus on the gory details of crucifixion. You know what Mark emphasizes? The shame. The shame of crucifixion. Crucifixion was the most humiliating way to die in the ancient world. It's humiliating. And Mark has spent 13 chapters showing us the beauty and glory of King Jesus like an Instagram reel. Just one after the other. Scene of his amazing beauty and grace and love and power. One after the other. He's been showing us who Jesus really is and his rightful place on the throne of glory at the right hand of the Father. But now, now in Mark chapter 15, Mark is showing us that this beautiful king has been lowered to the most shameful place. 
And Mark is showing us that that's exactly where we want Jesus to be. It's exactly where we want him. You see, we hate the way of Jesus so much that we would choose literally anyone over him. Anyone. Even Barabbas. Why? So we can finally be done with Jesus' claims of lordship over us. So we can be done with his insistence that we love God more than anything else. So we can be done with his demand that we lay down our lives for our neighbor. So we can be done with his command to love and pray for our enemies. Blah, 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 Jesus. No. No. We must be rid of his foolishness if we're going to see our dreams come true. We must be rid of Jesus. Sorry, Jesus, we're in control. We call the shots here, Jesus. We are our own saviors and our own lords. And so, the very same crowd who one week earlier waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna. Now raise their fists and shout, crucify him, crucify him. You see, we all shout Hosanna when we think Jesus has come to make our dreams come true. We all shout Hosanna when we think Jesus has come to elevate us. But when he instead comes and says, take up your cross and follow me. Love me more than you love anything else. Wash your neighbor's feet. Pray for your enemies. Love, serve, and worship me no matter the cost. Well, that changes our tune mighty quick. That changes our tune about Jesus mighty quick. That'll get us to lay our palm branches down and pick up a sword quick and in a hurry. Did you notice that the crowds actually didn't answer Pilate's question? Did you notice that? That's hilarious to me. <laughs> Pilate sees nothing wrong with Jesus, right? And when Pilate asked, why should I crucify Jesus? They didn't answer. The text literally says, they just shouted louder. <laughs> crucify him. Crucify him. We don't need a reason. We just want Jesus to shut up. Just shut up, Jesus. That's the only reason we need. Just Crucify him so we can be done with him. You see, folks, Barabbas is far less threatening to us than Jesus is. Barabbas just threatens our lives. He just threatens our lives. But Jesus threatens our identity. 
Jesus threatens what we cherish the most. The pretty little kingdoms we've spent our whole lives building. He's a threat to our pretty little kingdoms. And so we must be rid of him. I've heard people say it's possible the rich young ruler returned to serve Jesus at some point. Yeah, maybe. I think it's more likely he's in the crowd here today in our text. <laughs> Shouting right along with the rest of them. Crucify him. Crucify him. Why do I say that? I say that because I'm a part of this crowd. I don't want Jesus to take away my kingdom either. I'm a part of this crowd. And so are you. So are you. We are driven and obsessed with our desires, our dreams, our goals in life, not Jesus's. In fact, we couldn't give a rip about what Jesus wants. We are just as much a part of this crowd as the people who were literally there that day. One theologian writes this, quote, The cross caught humans, one by one and collectively, in the act of hating Christ more than anything else in the world, the very one whom the law calls us to love above all, end quote. The cross, it caught us <laughs> red-handed. We hate Jesus more than we hate anything else. And so here is the bad news this morning. Here's the bad news. We are the crowd. We are. But here is the very, very good news. Jesus loves the crowd. Jesus died for the crowd. <laughs> he died for the crowd. The crowd is the whole reason he came in the first place. It's the whole reason he came. I remember taking, before my grandmother passed away at took my family up there to see her, and we were all laughing. I was telling stories about how terrible I was as a teenager. I was, folks, I was terrible. Uh, and I was like running through the list with my grandmother, you know, about all the terrible things I had said and done, how rebellious I was and crazy I was. I was just going through, we were laughing, you know, my, my kids were in shock, you know. Where I was going through the whole thing. My wife was embarrassed, you know. I, I think it's hilarious now to look back at, you know. I'm telling my grandmother all these things, and it's so funny. She just had the most bewildered look on her face. She's so confused. She said, Dustin, when did you do any of those things? I was like, Mama, you were there. You were there <laughs> when I did this, 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 and this. She just... Shaking her head, no. What? 
What are you talking about? Let me ask you a question. Why couldn't my grandmother remember anything that I did? Because my grandmother was radically, stupidly in love with me. She just looked at me with googly eyes. When I was a teenager and I was cussing her and I was saying crazy things and doing crazy things, she's just looking at me with googly eyes. And she can't even remember. See, love covers a multitude of sins. I imagine that's how Jesus is here in our text today. As the crowd shouts, crucify him, crucify him. You're there and I'm there with pitchforks in hand, shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And what's Jesus doing? He's looking at us like my grandmother looked at me. He's got googly eyes for us. You see, we're the reason he came. (laughs) What do you think Christmas is all about? Jesus was born in that manger for the crowd to come get us, to save us, to bring us home. And it's because of his great love that he intentionally put himself in this most shameful place. That's where we wanted him. And that's where he wanted to be too. Because he knew that if he would go to the most shameful place, then then he could bring us to the most glorious place. He could bring us out of the pigsty into glory. Jesus turned us, his enemies, into his friends. He turned our shouting into worship. You see, it's easy to look at this scene of Jesus in chains and think that he was dragged here. That he was put here. No, that is not the case. He chose to be here. Jesus chose the chains, folks. No one put him in those chains. He put them on himself for you and for me. Those were my chains and those were your chains. Yes, it's true, Jesus took the place of Barabbas, but he also took the place of the crowd. He took my place and your place on the chopping block. Why? Because he has googly eyes for you and googly eyes for me. And it's his love for us that kept him in those chains in peaceful silence as he calmly awaited the full wrath of God to be poured out on him because of our sin. It should have been us in those chains, you know. It should have been us on that cross, but Jesus and the Father would have none of it. They would have none of it. One theologian writes, quote, The Father's mercy to take away sins burns like a fiery love 
that will not be quenched by anything other than having Christ take these sins so that in him the Father would forget them once and for all. End quote. The Apostle John writes, quote, We did not love God, but he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. End quote. The hymn writer puts it like this. Lamb of God, so pure and spotless. Lamb of God for sinners slain. Thy shed blood has wrought redemption, cleansing us from every stain. Lamb redeeming, lamb redeeming, bearing all our sins away. Bearing all our sins away. I have bad news for you this morning. You're a sinner. I am too. We are part of the crowd. But I also have good news for you this morning. All your sins have been washed away. All of them. They are forgiven in the blood of the Lamb.